Welcome to the 1823 podcast. Today we're going to have a conversation about COP26. I'm Dr. Tim Lane. I'm the program leader for the BSc in climate change and a lecturer in geography. And I'm joined by... I'm Dr. Céline Jamont-Duret. I am a senior lecturer in human geography. And I'm Emma Ward. I'm a third year geography student at LJMU. The idea of this is to have a chat about COP26 that's happening now. Uh, which is a two-week-long conference. It's a conference of the parties, is what COP stands for, the 26th edition, where I guess we're hoping there's been a lot of press and hype around it. It's been delayed for a year because of COVID. Um, we're hoping that a lot of change, I guess, comes out and some changes in policy. Um, and I thought we'd just maybe go around and chat about what we're expecting, what we think of it, and what our general sort of views and hopes for the future are. So Celine, um, what do you think, What's, what are your hopes or views at the moment? Well, I think what happened with uh, whenever a COP like this is organized, as you mentioned, every year there's a COP being organized. Some are more important than others, given the challenges to be overcome. Uh, it was a case with Copenhagen a few years ago in 2009, and uh, there was a lot of media attention because at that time it was about replacing the Kyoto Protocol and reaching a new agreement. And there was a lot of media attention, a lot of hopes, and in the end, it didn't um, lead to any tangible positive outcomes. And that was not only um, negative, a negative outcome for the state of the climate, but also for the message it sent to people. And after Copenhagen, climate denial increased. So the outcome of, of a, a conference like that has an impact on people's perception on climate change. So with COP26, we can hope that there will be positive outcomes, not just in itself in terms of the contributions by countries, in terms of their targets they want to achieve in terms of climate mitigation, but also in terms of the message being sent to people, uh, telling them that climate change matters. We need to mitigate climate change. It is important and governments matter and take action. Emma, what about you? Oh, I just thought, um when you said about the worries and how it affects the public too, it'd be quite interesting when you see the news afterwards and you see, oh, maybe this country is arguing with this country and then you think, oh, well, that's not very good and if America's not doing something, then maybe we shouldn't do it. It's like, as an, maybe an American person or somebody from Britain or anywhere around the world, you might think, oh, well, it's not that important then, is it? So then, like you're saying, climate denial might go up or down. Do you think it, what, are we hoping that it, well, obviously we're hoping that it doesn't, but... Do you think it will have a positive impact before it's happened? Or? It's difficult to say because um, the countries, um, I mean, one of the things that uh, countries will discuss is, is the Paris Agreement that was adopted in 2015. And one of the things the Paris Agreement does is that it asks countries to make voluntary contributions uh, in terms of uh, what their target, what their objectives are uh, in terms of um, decrease of emissions. And uh, countries have to propose new targets this year. They had actually last year, but as you mentioned, because of COVID, things have been delayed. Some countries have already resubmitted new, more ambitious targets. Uh, many haven't. So I think that will be a very important element of the conference, what new targets are being proposed by countries. And you're right, you mentioned uh, the United States, for example, if um, they have, I mean, you know, that uh, President Trump decided to leave the press agreement yeah. and President Biden said it to rejoin. So they are willing to to, uh, mm -hmm. to take action and they have proposed new, um, I mean, 
uh, targets. But what about the other countries? What, what about yeah. China, yeah. for example? And this has been an issue with climate change since the start. If the big players are not involved, then some smaller countries or, uh, may feel that they, they what is the point? Because mm -hmm. climate change is a global problem. It requires global solutions. If the big players are not involved, then is it really worth it? And that's mm -hmm. a question that, uh, that some other countries may have. Yeah, and I think for me also it's interesting because it is such a it is such a big problem that requires global um, collaboration. It's not it, even though as individuals we can each do our part at the scale we're talking about it. It needs glo and the sort of rate that things need to change. It's it requires global cooperation, which isn't quick. And so I, I looked at the um, the sort of key things they want to achieve at COP, and one is to uh, finalize and ratify the rules that was laid down in Paris so it's like it takes five years just mm. to come up with the rules and then lay them down and, and we hear a lot about kind of net zero by 2050 mm. that's that's not many groups of five years away now so it's something which we know these things sort of high-level governmental things take a long time uh, but hopefully things will start to move more quickly now um, so I thought it's interesting that the sort of main goals they cite on, on what they hope to achieve at the conference are to uh, achieve or, or sort of have goals for global net zero, which mm -hmm. is where the, the carbon is net zero. So that doesn't mean zero carbon emissions, but it's offset. Mm -hmm. um, protect communities and habitats. Sounds sensible. Uh, pledge $100 billion per mm -hmm. year for climate finance. And then the idea of working together collaboratively for, to finalise this Paris rulebook. So, so in some ways, very basic. And when you look at the net zero goals, they're all based around uh, stopping to use coal, stopping deforestation, more renewables, and increasing electric vehicles and other uh, equivalents, which are, at least to me, very basic ideas. Mm -hmm. But it's quite interesting that to, to most, I guess, uh, I won't say educated or people who understand the issues, that should be common sense, but it's mm -hmm. still at, at the kind of governmental level, a huge challenge for people to agree about it. That, that's what it's like for, I think, a lot of young people and students. Um, we've grown up learning about this. People probably learn about it in primary school now. I learned about it at high school and at university now, and we just keep hearing the same things over and over again. We know that we want change, but it just seems like people right at the top don't realize this. And I think that's why a lot of young people, and they have their own conferences now, I think there was one because they're in one in Italy recently, and mm. people, they, they want, we sort of want to take it on our own, into our own hands because it's our future, and we just think that they say these words, but they don't actually do anything about them, and we want to make change too, and we sort of can't because we're all, we're all young. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's all the problem with uh, trying to, to reach an agreement at the international level and as the difficulties of government to just to commit mm -hmm. and uh, when the Paris Agreement was adopted it was hailed as a success as a big diplomatic success and it was probably a diplomatic success because it had it, it took over 10 years of negotiations for countries to reach this agreement so and there was a deadlock and negotiation had been very very difficult so from that point of view it was a success but maybe one of the reasons of the success the reason why most countries, except I think two countries didn't sign during the conference. Uh, one of the reasons why there was this wide endorsement for the press agreement is precisely because it does not require a lot of efforts from government. 
Um, the legal, uh, legally binding element is quite weak. Um, the, the, there is no mechanism, uh, no penalties, for example, if countries don't uh, reach, uh, meet their objectives, uh, their, their emission reduction targets. And as Tim mentioned, it seems when you look at the objectives for this conference, it doesn't seem very ambitious. But at the, at the same time, maybe the reason why governments manage to sit together and to agree on the Paris Agreement because it's a very weak agreement. Mm. And we know that the objectives, the targets that have been adopted so far, they're not sufficient to limit the increase of temperature to yeah. two degrees or even less one to 1.5 degrees. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's important because, yeah, one of the, the Paris outcomes was to stay as close to 1.5 degrees as we could and definitely below two. And like you mm. said, there were... I can't remember if it was called Climate Tracker or something similar that came out very soon afterwards and showed even if all the countries agree and apply the pledges, we won't stop mm. at 1.5 yeah. or even 2. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> we're fighting a losing battle where we are, we're agreeing to these things which are definitely better than nothing, but we're at that point where it's been we identified 1.5 and we identified 2 as these key sort of milestones where the difference between 1.5 and 2 is huge in terms mm. of the damage and if we go beyond 2 degrees so this is 2 degrees of warming since pre-industrial so since about 1850 yeah. if we go beyond that then it's really bad um, and it's it's just strange that yeah I, I guess as you say Celine it's maybe it's agreed to because it, they are relatively easy targets mm. um, and even if you see there was some news news came out which leaked some of the uh, sort of email or I'm not sure sort of documents exchanged between countries looking at the recent IPCC report so that was pretty uh, damning in terms of how much warming has happened and why it's us and countries like Norway and Australia were basically the these sort of communications were leaked where they were saying oh please can you take out this reference to removing coal um, because <laughs> basically because we don't want to do that so countries and Australia aren't a, a great example and same with Norway these countries rely on lots of these industries they're just completely against removing coal and things like that from their from their sort of energy production and it's just shows that at least it in well I mean in Britain we have issues so we had sort of a new coal mine being built in Cumbria mm, yeah. and we have this pledge to use renewables but <clears throat> we're also buying energy from Iceland so we're having a new uh, cable put in so we can get free cheap renewable energy to make us look good that we're buying in and this countries are, are realizing they need to but some countries are still massively against it mm. um, and I think I think it was Keir Starmer I think who said that we're at least in the UK maybe we don't have any more or less climate denial but was it climate delay uh, delayers mm. oh, so it's like every yeah. year or every five years that some sort of action is delayed it adds even more problems for us and mm. and we're, we're lucky we don't have a trump type figure uh, who yeah. who says that climate change is fake but what good is that if we're not doing anything to address it mm. um yeah yeah it's interesting and for many many years uh, the focus was really on mitigation and um talking about adaptation was not even it seemed that when we were talking about adaptation it was an acknowledgement of failure that we will not be able to mitigate climate change. And now I think more and more, there are more and more discussion about adaptation because maybe there is this recognition that we are just not doing enough. And even if uh, the emissions peak in, in 15 or 20 years, it 
still take a lot of time uh, for uh, for for the climate uh, mm. to change, and that maybe we we need. We s we still have to talk about, about mitigation, and there's also a moral duty. I think it's just wrong to j just how can we imagine that human activity have such an impact on the environment? Just yeah. that it's not just about the technicality of climate change; it's about uh, the the morality behind uh, the impact human activities have on the environment that we really have to consider. But we also have to talk about adaptation because the more we wait, mm. the more negative impacts. And we know that uh, it's especially vulnerable, very vulnerable countries um, that are not the countries the most responsible for climate change. Mm -hmm. So there are some very important um, ethical and moral challenges as well that need to be addressed. What sort of adaptations? Like what are the key well, things we could do? Well, it's about supporting the most vulnerable countries. Um, mm -hmm. We know that when we look at um, countries the most vulnerable to climate change, uh, especially in Africa, and it's about uh, supporting resilience. Um, yeah. And uh, Tim mentioned this uh, financial uh, objective, this uh, $100 billion uh, mobilized every year. So that shows um, that is uh, in the press agreement. And so this is an objective that uh, countries have agreed even before that. I think even in Copenhagen, governments agreed on this objective to provide financial support to the most vulnerable countries. Uh, it's not just for mitigation, it's also for adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, so far, these objectives have, have not been met. I think last year, just less than 80 um, a billion were provided. And when we look at which countries benefit from this financial support, it's um, Africa gets um, doesn't get that much compared to other countries in, in, in Asia. So it's about who is getting what. And there are really calls to treat to really try to mobilize resources to support um, in a, the most efficient way countries who are suffering from climate change mm. that they are not responsible for. Yeah. Mm. So this is also, also something that, um, that hopefully um, countries will make progress on um, in Glasgow. Yeah, because I think it's, very, it's maybe one of the things why we, we and maybe the US are, are fairly complacent because we maybe have had slightly increased or slightly more intense extreme weather events yeah. uh, the US especially has been hit by quite a few storms but beyond that we're not getting heat waves that mm. are, are killing no, thousands of no. people every year we're not getting the sort of flooding that is wiping out villages so we almost maybe it's this because it's not at our door we're very it's very hard for us to envisage how bad it is I think the flooding in Europe was quite a shock just to mm. see how those houses were gone and you see like a 16 year old girl and I'm, I imagined if I was her I was like my house is just gone it's gone downstream what do you do in that situation you think that's climate change that's that's caused that that's, that's crazy yeah. um, with the with the climate finance though how, how does that work does each country pledge to donate to this in this big pot of money that then goes to these other countries yeah I think it's okay it's uh, done to each country to decide uh, how much money they're going to mobilize uh, to contribute to this uh, to this fund but uh, so far it's this objective has not been met and this is one of um, you know one of the items that will be um, I know that yeah that will be discussed mm -hmm. uh, in Glasgow Need to make yeah because I know the, U the US were very against it and about, <laughs> against how much they should be contributing yeah. and mm. and which is a it's a it's a sore topic but at the end what the sort of biggest contributors historically mm -hmm. such as ours the US need to be footing the bill really yeah yes it's really very important ethical questions behind climate change <laughs> yeah 
definitely yeah, who's what? responsible <laughs> yeah exactly if, if anybody's are we all responsible or are our ancestors responsible yeah it's all these things yeah stuff. there was a, a recent I think carbon brief recently put out a, a they had managed to chart all of emissions through time and found the top mm. power of many uh, emitters <laughs> which is quite sobering reading but yeah it's interesting what would you in terms of the UK what do you think we could or should be doing differently or better or that you'd like um, to see I, sp- I feel like it's hard like oh yeah electric cars let's do it but then it's not like economically sustainable for everyone so for, for me like if I want to buy a car now I can't afford to buy an electric car I'm, I'm not to be like oh every student's not got much money but going into the workplace straight away and then think oh I want to buy a car and I want to be sustainable and for the environment you, you haven't got that option you might think oh, I'll have to buy petrol diesel and then mm. there's the objective isn't that by 2030 to sell no more petrol diesel cars but then after that they'll still be on the road because people will have bought them in the years before and just it's, it's an option for some people but then I guess with money and things like that it's not for, not yeah. for everyone um but yeah I feel like we do a lot of these trials so I look at like council reports on transport like oh we're going to trial a hydrogen a bus like I've been fueled by hydrogen and you think can't we not just do it though can we not, we're not just doing it now straight away all the cities have already done it so but I understand that these things take time and it's finding the money as well. And I feel like it's always a bit down to money <laughs> and funding. Yeah, I think on transportation, there also need to be, um, you know, measures taken higher up mm. to regard the price of transportation, for example. I mean, public transportation mm. uh, as a train user, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the price is just keep increasing. So yeah. how do you how do you how do you get people to to switch from oh, yeah. using the car to yeah. public yeah. transportation? Do you want to encourage people to ex- change ex- to ex- not ex- to not use the car? Like, oh, yeah, walk exactly. and cycle. Yeah. But it's like, well, how What's can I cycle around a city if I've got yeah. no cycle yeah. lanes? And I yeah. Yeah. you had experience of cycling in Liverpool yeah. team. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just. It's straight, even a city like Liverpool that's not a big city, but it's, and we're probably better than some, but it's so badly designed for cyclists. Mm. And even recently they, they put in brand new cycle lanes um, along the strand by the Liver building and they just end in a curb. So if you're coming towards them, you have to somehow jump up off the road onto a mm. curb and <laughs> they've just not been designed by cyclists. And, and mm. it's almost as if, the funding's been put there and it's just kind of a nod of, okay, well, now we have cycle lanes, we can move on to the next thing instead of thinking, okay, how can cycle lanes work well? And it's hard because it's uh, something like cycling or public transport, it's such a historic issue based on how the city was built, I guess. So somewhere like mm. we're often, I guess, in the Netherlands are taken as this like mm. perfect example. But I think it's because they put pedestrians and cyclists first and then work out where the cars yeah. will go afterwards. Whereas mm. We don't because at the moment, well, most people drive um, and it's very hard to retrofit cycle mm. lanes into areas. So there are areas where during COVID they brought in a lot, lot of temporary cycle mm. lanes, which actually, I mean, there's a lot that COVID was bad for, but in some ways it helped a lot mm. of things, made a lot of big roads one way, which allowed cycle lanes to be put in and they're much quieter. And some of them have stayed, um, which they haven't turned into permanent ones yet, but would be a really good initiative because as you said i think public transport in general in the, in the uk is not great especially mm. once you get i mean if you're in london it's expensive but it's fairly regular but as you say with with yourself traveling mm. to work it's the cost is huge mm-hmm. um and I, and I agree with what you said about buying electric cars like even when i was looking at new cars it's they're so expensive and they're still at that stage where oh if i buy one that's 
five years old? Is the battery going to die in a few mm. years? I don't really know. And and I think it's a constant, or at least it's something that I feel, is this constant theme of the government puts the onus on us. So yeah. something yeah. like like bringing a fee for the plastic bags at supermarkets, which is great because everyone went out and bought tote bags and mm. was fine. But it was always, it was okay, okay, we have to pay 10p or 5p for a bag. It's like, well, why not the supermarket? Why... Why don't the supermarket address the fact that they have a pepper shrink wrapped in some plastic? Mm. Like, why is the one plastic bag I'm using the issue as opposed to the black plastic or the mushroom, all those sorts of things yeah. where it's like, it's all about economics, I guess, it, yeah. when it comes to it. They don't want to get Tesco or Asda to, to pull out and not no. have any more shops because it, it helps the economy so much. But it's exactly the same with, with cars. And yeah. I was looking in, I mean, I know... Norway has its issues in terms of its its oil and gas side, but my friend lives in Norway and has just bought a Tesla, and it's cheaper to buy a Tesla in Norway than in the UK, even though Norway is one of the most expensive countries in the world. And if you go to Norway, electric cars make up 54% of all vehicles on the road, which uh-huh. is huge. Yeah. And there's no import tax, there's no VAT. So if you were to buy a, a VW Golf, uh, that would cost more than buying a VW e-Golf which is just not the same here. We, we yeah. have to pay much more for a, uh, an electric car. And that's the sort of incentives we need. Mm. I mean, there were certain in- incentives of a few thousand pounds off, which I think mm. now they've, they've got rid of. And there's a few incentives with like, oh, you get a thousand pounds if you install a wall charger, but things like that, they, they, the infrastructure, at least for me, I live in a flat and there would be nowhere for me yeah. to plug my car yeah. in. Mm. And they, they're bringing in sort of lamppost chargers, which are great, but it's kind of, it needs to needs to catch up more quickly, really, um, which it will do, I'm sure. But at the moment, yeah, it's just financially impossible, I think, for a lot of us to have electric cars. Yeah, that's a, it's a, um, a very good point. How to how to foster behavior change, and if people feel that uh, it's always done to them and that they have to sacrifice something, mm-hmm. um, it's quite difficult to, to trigger any change and. Um, I don't know to which extent um, a conference like um, COP26, for example, can that have a positive impact on people's willingness to, to change, to, to make mm. any, any positive change or not? Sometimes they can feel a bit disconnected, mm. kind of yeah. they have, can have a feeling of disconnection bet- between these big conferences and climate change, which is quite complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a lot yeah. of misunderstanding, uh, misunderstanding uh, of people for, for climate change, what it is and uh, the as a human cause and uh, uh, and the impacts and to relate that to their own concrete specific actions yeah. sometimes mm. they can and if they feel like they have to to pay more and to do that type of sacrifices mm-hmm. they may simply decide not to believe in it yeah yeah not to believe yeah i know yeah i, mean, I use it intentionally i was yeah yeah i'm, I'm making quotation yeah, marks yeah. at the moment <laughs> Um, because it's like if people could believe in it or not, and uh, they would yeah. prefer to, to, let's say, to disregard mm-hmm. climate yeah. change as not being important, yeah. if it means that they have to sacrifice something. And uh, this is really uh, an important, important issue. And when it looks at uh, climate denial, climate skepticism, there are different types of, of denial. Some people may not think that climate change, that the climate is changing or that it is due to human activities mm, or that the yeah. impact will be so dramatic. And some people just may just don't believe in any policy, um, climate policy, they may just not, or measures, they may 
they may not want to take any any measures against climate change if it means paying more, yeah. uh, making any sacrifice. And for that reason, they're just not going to consider yeah. something important to address. No, definitely. And I think, I mean, there was, there's been talk of sort of, you know, a climate tax and things like that. And it's interesting. I don't, I think there was a study on it. I can't remember what they said, but where they were asking people, how much would you be prepared to pay per month mm. to contribute to a climate fund and it was hardly anything because mm. it's such maybe as you said because it's such a complicated issue and it's so even though it's so real it's very abstract mm. like climate change is such an abstract thing just in its definition it's like 30 years of of yeah. weather like it's yeah. not something which we can really observe um without being told it's there and shown the evidence yeah. for that people i think yeah find it very very easy to choose to ignore it mm-hmm. um but i think i mean I think change or behaviours are changing, especially maybe as you said, among young people. Um, but even like if you go to, I know like you could sort of look at the whatever five, ten things that are best to do to reduce your personal carbon footprint mm-hmm. and beyond public transport, flying less, driving less is like eating less meat. Yeah, and like, a lot of people do that. They yeah. say like, oh yeah, I'm, I've turned vegetarian or I'm, I'm vegan now. And I'm like, oh yeah. wow, okay, you've taken that massive step then. But yeah. it's nice to see that people have taken that extra step and they've tried to take it in their own hands. At the same time, I'm like, well, why should we have to make these yeah. decisions? And I think a lot of young people just say, I'd, I just want to go to Shell and stand outside and protest because they're the ones causing this. Yeah, um, yeah I think it's almost, a, a, I guess they're two different sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's interesting, like, because some young people have done that, it's, or well, I guess, and older people, the like choice of meat-free options in supermarkets is huge, which yeah. is great. And but it's almost this like rabbit warren of then it's like, oh, but should you be buying from Tesco, which is one of the biggest polluters, <laughs> and all these multinationals, because they're not actually doing anything good. So it's like, there's only so much you can do. And I think everyone, everyone can do something uh, within their comfort levels and some yeah. people can do far more some people uh, are much happier doing a little less but it's still something mm. um, but I think it yeah it varies from very much from person to person I don't think people I mean I didn't know that Tesco was a massive polluter I went to Tesco before yeah, so it's, a, this, how do you get that information out there without yeah, ruining Tesco's I mean, for example reputation and yeah like I think because all these big companies <laughs> have very bad so, and even things like you, you know you're told to uh, change your bank from like Barclays which is they invest in in fossil fuels and so on there's all these things which just seem very left field but actually if enough people don't bank with this bank then they will have to stop investing in fossil fuels because they're losing all their customers and and same with with I guess Tesco had to buy in more meat replacements because otherwise people will go elsewhere mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's it's kind of I guess it's one of those you can go as deep as you want in terms of how many levels of all that sort of side and you can yeah just grow your own vegetables and eat that and have a if you have the ability to this this very yeah. low carbon footprint life but it's very very difficult what's interesting is that last year during the first uh, lockdowns many people turned to farm farm shop um mm-hmm. and there was some discussion around oh maybe this is the opportunity to change our behavior and to to go to lo- to get delivery from our local um, farms instead of going to the supermarket because people wanted to stay had to stay at home and so on, but and it seems that uh, and we know that the carbon footprint, the global carbon footprint, had decreased uh, last mm-hmm. year, but with things going back to normal, I think people have just gone back to, yeah. Yeah. to the yeah. old well, habits. Just a, I guess it's a, a 
ease, isn't it? That's yeah. why yeah, supermarkets I think, exist. We're a bit spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I think, oh, I can just go and just get whatever I want almost. Like I can yeah. go and get a banana and well, that's not been grown here, has it? And, no. Or an avocado or anything like that. And you think, oh, it's for people about younger than me they're like oh that's normal yeah but if i go back 50 years they'd be like this is this is strange what's yeah. this food in the shop so. and it's hard because even i mean shopping at a, a farm shop or a greengrocer is probably a bit more expensive than mm-hmm. a supermarket and even if the quality is better and it's local and you know who the money's going to it's still it's still more expensive and regardless yeah. of how much you earn or don't earn it's still it's still something you'll consider um so again it's difficult because it's almost putting the onus on you it's like well yeah. why is this yeah not maybe why is this so expensive, but why is there such a cheap alternative? Because if that wasn't mm. there, then more people mm. would shop there. But I mean, yeah. yeah, it's the same. I remember people, you know, it was people doing a bit of online shopping, but there was lots of stuff about oh, how to fix your clothes and stuff. Mm. And then the first day after lockdown, there was the queues for Primark were on the BBC <laughs> yeah, in Liverpool because yeah. it was like, oh, look how many people are. They had to open the store a half an hour early because it was like. Has everyone just forgotten Is it that? People just... miss. It's really what they missed. Yeah, yeah. they had to go to inconvenience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think, like you said, yeah, it's a convenience thing, and you just you mm. kind of forget it and go onto autopilot. Mm. But I think COVID also taught us, at least for me, a bit showed how quickly, when there was a crisis, that the government's actually treated as a crisis. How quickly things mm-hmm. can be done because suddenly all the borders are shut. Suddenly mm. you have to stay inside your house. You can't drive. You, there all these rules that came in, which if versions of those for sort of the climate emergency in air quotes because they don't treat it as an emergency yeah. happened mm-hmm. then it's like why why can't we what's the difference between these two things and and covid was awful yeah. but climate change is going to be awful and affect people yeah. for hundreds maybe thousands of years yeah i think people don't probably don't feel like that because they tend to think that climate change is about will have an impact in the future yeah. they don't think that yeah. it has already happened and they don't feel, at least I mean people here, um, they don't feel that they are going to be affected. So there's this kind mm. of psychological distance mm. with climate change. I think it will be about a more drought in Africa, for example, yeah. uh, or more rainfall in, in other regions. They don't feel they will be directly affected. And, um, uh, and, and so they don't really see why they should alter the behavior mm-hmm. if for something that they don't really seem yeah, affected. Yeah. Well, with COVID, the link was obvious, uh, uh, was yeah. more obvious, but as you said, climate change just kills people yeah. as well, and yeah. mm-hmm. it's a completely different um, um, issue, different type of impact, but we know that it is um, a very harmful yeah. and damaging one as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think I, there's a book by a guy I know in Iceland, Andre Magnusson, yeah. and he talks about how sort of how to talk about climate change without talking about climate change because Mm -hmm. he said and it's a good like topical phrase but he said there's this like herd immunity to climate change we've heard about it so much Mm. and we're all like i guess almost inoculated against it where we it's just like oh yeah climate change so it's like how do we mention it and talk to people and understand because we always hear 2100 and that Mm. seems a long way away Um, and he was saying he did an experiment with his his granddaughter I think and looked at everyone that sort of she knows going back to her great grandma and everyone that she may know in the future so going through to her imaginary granddaughter and if you link all those up if, if they live to the sort of average age of 80 something it covered 262 years so it's like you you as a person will be known 
for 260 years. So someone in 260 years will be talking about you and what you did and about your history and some memories that maybe they have or their grandparents have of you. And it was like, when you say it like that, 2100 doesn't seem mm. very far away. That's no. 80, less than 80 years away. So it's this interesting way where I think when you hear 2100, even to me, even though I know it's relatively soon, it still feels so far away that mm. it's like 2050, I can imagine, but 2100, I can't. But it's like naturality, probably um, our children or grandchildren will be mm. living far beyond that and into the future. So I think it's, again, I, as you said, because it's such a complicated issue, the need to kind of humanise it or put something like that on it in the future is is necessary. Because, I mean, and you've done lots on this, Celine, but like sustainability, is, the concept has been mm. around for so long. Mm-hmm. And just the the bare the basic idea of kind of sustaining things for the future, but still we don't. I don't know. We can't, seem to have forgotten it every mm-hmm. now and again. Yeah. So to me, you've done a lot of work with children and education, mm. the education side. So what do you think? What's the right message to to give children? How to frame the message for mm-hmm. children? Yeah, I think. To- it's hard because from when I worked with even primary school children, they, compared to when I was at secondary school, they know so much about climate change. Yeah, like yeah. it was mm. kind of not scared, like scary in a good way. It was like, oh, I don't need to tell them all this because they already mm. know this. Um, and the stuff which I found useful for them instead was to talk about climate science. And, and they knew, they understood temperatures were getting warmer, but they didn't maybe understand exactly how it works and how everything links together. Um, so I think that's something that's important. And also we tried to, when we worked with them, is teach them about scientists and what scientists do. And scientists aren't just like old white men in lab coats standing in a lab. Like it's far more wide than that and who who they could talk to about scientists. And because I think some of the skepticism with all these things comes from this misunderstanding of mm-hmm. science or, or not even misunderstanding, just disconnect from it. So... I think the message whenever we whenever we try and speak to them needs to be not I mean we can't sugarcoat it too much and pretend things are fine because that's Ugh. why we get to where we are now we people are like oh it's fine then I just won't worry about it for 10 years but we need to give them some sort of hope and show them that change can be mm-hmm. done um and the difficulty is it is it is going to be difficult but it's like the more people we empower to kind of understand what they could do and what changes they can make to themselves and avenues to, as I know, either explore nature and understand more or mm. protest or whatever they want to do, I think the better, which is what we're seeing now. I mean, sort of the stuff with Greta Thunberg went from her mm. outside her school uh, to however many yeah. thousand people mm. every, every Friday, every week protesting. So things like that show kind of the impact that, that young people can have. Because I think if we're just very... Uh, down and don't offer any solutions mm. it's it's pointless it's not going to help anyone yeah i think that um, the, the research done on, on uh, communication climate has shown that if the message is too negative people are not going it, it's not going to lead to to people willingness to to change if the message is too negative to dooms like because it will just lead to feeling of hopelessness mm. or sometimes people may think it's exa- ex- it's an exaggeration mm. it, it yeah. cannot be that <laughs> bad so it has the opposite uh, impact so a positive message may be more more effective mm. um it may yeah more mm. easily lead to to behavioral change we have like the phrase climate anxiety now don't yes, we and i think yeah. a lot of well i think that anxiety itself was 
people for me felt like sort of like a new thing is be more open about mental health but now we have climate anxiety and recognizing that too and how anybody of any age can be really concerned mm. and, it, and it can get you down a lot and you, yeah. you just try and you got to try and shift your mindset so I to think oh well, we can make change and I think being a bit younger I'm like oh yeah we can do but it's trying to convince somebody else that and trying to say oh you can make this change or well then also but then we need the big governments to make the changes too yeah and I think it's this this idea that I think younger people now have a far better understanding of what needs to be done and what's going on than people who are maybe in their in their 40s or 50s who are the ones making the decision because they're they've been taught this since school and they've grown up in it and if they want to it's much easier to get involved like it's kind of not only with sort of social media and everything which is everywhere it's very very easy to see like oh like what what's this post about climate anxiety yeah. what's this post about this school strike um and you're seeing yeah so there's like the the climate anxiety stuff that's come out that's been researched on it says that like a huge percent of people young people have climate or eco anxiety and are struggling with it and it's i don't know it's completely understandable and i guess mm. it's slightly different because we work in the field so yeah. we're so i don't know i feel like i i deal with it so often that i'm mm. almost mm. um like passively i forget mm. about it because it's day to day whereas whereas when you're you're maybe working somewhere else or or you think about it as, as it a sort of i guess intrusive thoughts all the time it, it can be really damaging I think and mm. I guess that's where we need to yeah make sure we have the positive message and try and turn the I guess the the anxiety into some sort of agency and ability to do something however that might be I think that's the important thing mm. well and I think so at LGMU what do you think we could do better as a university what have you noticed as a student Emma that we could um. change what do you think I think I heard recently that people say, oh, we want to do this at the universe, like um, be more energy efficient or um, be, use sustainable sources. And I think it was you that said, well, we already do this. But I don't think the students know. And mm. I think it, the, I always think about it's about marketing and sort of media and like putting it out there and saying, actually, we do all these good things. And mm. I think maybe the bins and stuff, people think, oh, well, maybe that could be a bit better. But then it's like, how far do you go? And it's trying to weigh up both sides of it. People want sometimes the extreme. And it's like, can you, how, how hard is it? Or is it how easy or how hard is it to get to that point? Um, it's quite I quite like the students' union last year having the whole sustainability champions thing. And I hope that keeps going. And because you felt like you could make change, I felt like I could too, and yeah. influence the whole mm. student body. And then if that student body influences another one at another university, then maybe you can spread out. And that's why you have like the NUS and the whole like the national students, and then maybe yeah. even on a global thing too. Um, but I think, yeah, uh, communication is probably mm. a, bit, a yeah. thing that needs to be do, worked on. Do you know, for example, that the university has signed a climate emergency? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. I don't, if I asked my friends that, they probably wouldn't know, mm. no. Yeah. I think that plan to to make things more visible. Yeah, uh, because they're releasing a climate action plan mm. um, to kind of highlight what the big goals are. And it's interesting because there's... So big things like trying to get LGMU to be net carbon net zero, mm -hmm. which is a massive, well, it would be very easy because we could pay a lot of money and offset everything, but that's not really the way <laughs> to do it, um, just to tick a box. But it's something that's very, very difficult to do when, you know, kind of we have field trips where we fly abroad, mm -hmm. staff go abroad for field work or conferences, um, more, I guess, esoteric or side things like procurement and and the carbon impact of how we procure goods and services mm -hmm. things that I'm sure if we told students they wouldn't be very interesting and, and often students who I mean you're very engaged but some students would just see like 
oh, I only saw one recycling bin, LGMU does nothing. Yeah, uh, that, so it's this I've heard that, yeah, yeah. It's this interesting kind of dichotomy of where <coughs> we probably do a lot more than people think. We could definitely do more um, and it make it more visible. Um, but yeah, some of these things that if we just shouted about a bit more, I think students would be a bit happier and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And we're also bringing in a, a is it the active travel plan mm-hmm. to kind of encourage cycling cycling in and walking between buildings which i think is great um so simple things like how to like cycling to byram street is quite difficult so i had to ask jason my boss's boss because he cycles i was like how do i how do i actually get in Mm. how do i which road do i cross without uh getting stuck at a traffic light and then run over or something and and things like that will really help and encourage people Mm -hmm. to cycle in far more and walk in far more and use public transport i think I think I noticed them because they've changed the cafe. I think maybe they've got different caterers in, but the, the signs are up there and they say, yeah, we're, we're trying to do this. We don't use plastic anymore. And I'm like, yeah, that's really good. And people probably think, oh yeah, that's amazing. And then I've got this little thing in the back of my mind where I'm like, well, maybe you could be doing more, but no, it's, it, I feel like it's a start. Like yeah. if, you, if you put the message out there and people are like, oh, okay. So maybe I should stop using less plastic, maybe. Yeah, more. and I think because we're such a, I, we, we have so many students and so many staff, like we're such a, is it the biggest employer in, in Liverpool? And the students, they, you know, you're, you're here for maybe three years or so. There's a, a new cohort every single year. Like we, we have such an opportunity to either educate and teach a lot of students about sustainability, even if they're on a random course, but also to, while they're here, make sure they're kind of living as sustainable as, sta- as, sustainable <laughs> as possible. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. And I don't know, it gives us the chance to impact on a lot of people. But I think like, like what you said about the, the, JMSU like as students and as sort of uh, climate change or sustainability champions I think you have quite a big voice and almost in some ways bigger than some of the staff because you do represent however many thousand people so Mm -hmm. if you say look as students we really want to see this it's a really good way to to push forward some of the policies or ideas and bring 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 things to because we sit in our offices maybe we don't notice things whereas you go around all the buildings Mm. Uh, bring things to our attention and sort of help cause changes across the uni. <laughs> yeah, I do think students are powerful and yeah. I mean, young people in general. I feel like you mentioned it before, social media, even though it can be a nuisance and it spreads so much misinformation. If you go, for me, if you go on the on the right app at the right time, you can, you can't, and you choose who to follow and you're like really specific and you don't go with the algorithms, you can find the right sources of information. Mm. But it's easy for people to not do that because yeah. if they just scroll and scroll and yeah. they're like, oh, that, oh, climate change isn't real because <laughs> this person said it's not real. So then it just goes off there. But for example, I use Instagram a lot and I think it's quite powerful and I always see stuff about fast fashion and, and I don't know, heat waves and that. I try and follow the right news and mm. try and, but then also be a bit critical about it too. Like, are they saying the right thing? But I don't know if most people do that. So yeah, I get, yeah, I guess some people just take it in whatever it says without mm-hmm. really appreciating but I think it's good like you said it's kind of got to a point where climate change sustainability has kind of percolated into fashion and everything in a more like everyone knows what fast fashion means and maybe why it's bad and people understand these sorts of things and it's far more in our sort of common vocabulary than it Mm -hmm. used to be Mm -hmm. which is great and even across LGMU like there's people working in the fashion departments on this sort of thing in the in the arts department so in these sort of areas which aren't classically like like in the in the faculty of science working on climate change it's done all over which Mm -hmm. is really good and really interesting cool i think that's that's good 
so yeah, that was really interesting. I'm sort of quietly optimistic. I think the sort of amount of press and events going on surrounding COP, hopefully, even though it could be damaging, will only be a good thing. I mean, there's, it's partly because it's it's in the UK, in Glasgow, but the amount of things that are going to be going on and the amount of news, I think, will hopefully push those who are maybe on the fence into seeing what else they could do. Mm. And hopefully a lot of the messaging that comes out will provide sort of practical ideas of what people at individual levels or, or city yeah. levels or local community levels can do uh, to change things. And hopefully the, the actual outcomes of the conference will be beneficial.